Good morning, everyone. Would you please stand as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord this morning? You know, I, I love this first song that we're singing because I've really come to know the truth behind it. My, uh, my earthly father is an alcoholic. He's made some really bad choices in his life, and as a result, I've lived most of my life without him around. But what that has done is it's created this space by which I've really gotten to know God as my Heavenly Father. And what I have found of Him is that He is good, that He is kind, that He is loving, He's strong, He's constant, He is faithful, He's never left me, never forsaken me, that His plans for me are always good, they are never evil, they are always to give me a future and to give me a hope. And I want you to know this morning that his plans for you are exactly the same. They are exactly the same because he is good. So will you join me this morning and declare this with me together? That you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am.
Aren't you glad that we have a good Father in our God? Would you please take a moment and turn and tell somebody this morning that we have a good Father in our God, and then you can be seated. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice, we're hanging on every word. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we want to know you more and more, we're hanging on every word.
Heroes is our series this summer, and over the last several weeks, it has been great to hear from our pastors and to be challenged in our faith by the story of these different Bible characters, these men and women, how they, in their own way, in their own time, right, responded to God's leading as they faced all kinds of daunting circumstances, situations that were unique to them, and yet, in a way, common for us as people. And I'm looking forward to continuing that today. Before I do, I 
Just want to give you an update on where we're at with our worship pastor search. Uh, you hope our regulars know that we've been without a worship pastor since May, and beginning in June, we launched a search. We're working with a firm called Slingshot and a consultant named Dave Miller, and working with Dave, he's gotten our name out there. We've had the chance to interact with different uh, candidates and worship leaders from different parts of the country. We've spoken with some. We've watched a lot of video, listened to a lot of music, read a lot of resumes, and um, no clear, obvious one answer right now, but we're continuing to pray and seek God's direction on that. I, I should say this, though, too. You know, since May, Sunday by Sunday, we have had 100% lay-led, volunteer worship by both the team up front and the team back in the tech booth, and they have just done a tremendous job, don't you think? It's just been great to see, and, and you just, you know, you just kind of see the above-the-water iceberg part of what happens on Sunday, but the planning the rehearsing, the, all that people do individually and then collectively just to lead up to a Sunday has been tremendous. And special tip of the cap to our worship leaders, Carrie Gordon, who's leading this week, Adam Prime, Tim Newmeyer's led, Ali Sikowiak's led. And it's just been great. And again, all the other vocalists and instrumentalists and tech group. It's just been great to see how Sundays have been carried along. So we'll continue to update. You have to admit, you know, it it bogged down a little in the summer, and Kathy and I were gone a couple weeks in July, but, you know, since we've turned the page to August, things are gearing back up, and so we will keep you posted as things progress. You know, as great as this Hero series has been, as we've gone through it, I've had a little concern both for us as a church and even for me personally that When we hear this word hero brought up over and over and over, I think there's a part in all of us inside that says, well, they don't mean me. They're not talking about me. Yes, I get that there are certain great men and women that God has used throughout the ages to inspire others in their faith, but those people are rare. They're special. They're extraordinary. They're once in a generation. They don't live the common, ordinary life that I do, you know, nondescript community like Saginaw, get up, go to work to a rather mundane job that pays okay, but isn't all that high profile, driving the same car, shopping at the same stores, things like that. And maybe even now, as you think about your own life, you, you wonder, you know, God, there really isn't anything terribly thrilling taking place. And so you hear us pastors talk about heroes, and you write yourself off because you think we can't possibly be talking about you. But guess what? We are. We are. God's Word is talking to you because when we dig into these stories in the Bible, we realize that God defines a hero differently than we do and certainly differently than our culture does. Now, we'll get to today's story in a moment, but before we do, let's make sure we're clear on what a hero is and maybe even more importantly, what a hero is not. So unlike certain societal perceptions or personal misunderstandings that we might have, that from God's perspective, first of all, being a hero is not the same as being famous. Being a hero is not the same as being famous. I mean, this is where I think our culture has got it all wrong to the point now where the Kardashian sisters are considered role models. What they've done, I'm really not quite sure, but they are incredibly famous or having more followers on social media is more important than doing great things for others. You know, right now we find ourselves in the midst of the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio, and I have to admit that I am a little bit of an Olympics junkie, probably watch a little more TV than I should, but I'm really drawn to Olympic competition because unlike pro sports where, you know, it's year-round wall-to-wall coverage and these athletes are making millions upon millions of dollars, most everyone who competes in the Olympics is a relative unknown. They train like crazy year-round, all hours of the day, out of the spotlight for what? For one shot every four years. 
It's insane. So yes, there are those handful of, you know, gymnasts and track stars and swimming medalists that we know of, but for every one of them, there are dozens of others from all over the world who ride a bike, paddle a canoe, shoot a pistol, lift a lot of weights, not for the money, not for the fame, but simply because they're driven to do their best. You know, heroic faith is a lot like that. It's about Christian men and women out of the spotlight who follow God. See, heroic faith is about doing the right thing, not so that others will notice, but rather so that their Lord will be pleased. You know, ultimately speaking, heroic faith performs for an audience of one, God himself. So if you're feeling like you're rather normal, ordinary, unknown, you know, guess what? You're in a great position. A great position to live out true heroic faith because being a hero is not the same as being famous. Not only that, and here's something else you need to know. Now, from God's perspective, being a hero is not the same as being fearless. It's not about being famous. It's not about being fearless. We touched on this in the series before several times. Back in the open week, Pastor Sam preached on the story of Joshua, Caleb, and he said that courage is not the absence of fear, but rather courage is the application of faith to that fear, right? See, I think we too easily and incorrectly disqualify ourselves from heroic faith because we get afraid. We get butterflies in our stomach when we face a challenge and we think to ourselves, well, that's certainly not the response of a hero, right? Heroes are brave. Heroes are fearless. And I'm not any of those things. Listen, everyone who is willing to follow God, who's willing to move beyond the cocoon of a safe and guarded life is going to experience fear. That's what it means to be human living in this world. came across a quote recently that really stuck with me. That someone once said, that a hero and a coward have one thing in common, and that's fear. See, there's really no such thing as being fearless. And that if your life, let me say this, is completely absent of any kind of fear for long stretches of time, then chances are you're not really living. Chances are you're probably choosing your own comfort over obedience to God. No, fear is part of the package. So being a hero when it comes to your faith doesn't mean your life is going to be absent of fear. Rather, it just means that when the fear comes, and it is going to come, that you're going to turn to the Lord rather than give into your fear. So if you're not famous, if you ever get afraid, then God's got you right where he wants you when it comes to heroic faith. And it's really those two themes that come into play here with today's story of the life of an Old Testament king by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Now, be honest, all right, and show of hands. How many of you before today have heard of King Hezekiah? Okay, those of you with your hands up, how many of you are telling the truth, right? You know? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. A lot of Bible names have carried over, and, you know, if you go over in the nursery, you'll see some Joshua's and Caleb's, you know, and Rebecca's. I don't see any little Hezekiahs running around, okay? Hezzy, you know, sounds like a rap name or something. You know, I don't know. I just, right? He isn't even good enough to make the list up here, right? And yet God takes this unknown and uses him. The point is, heroic faith can come in any package, anywhere, anytime, as long as God's in the picture, even in the face of impossible odds an incredible fear. And that really is the heart of our story today. So this morning, we're going to walk through a rather long extended passage from the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. 2 Kings is really this historical book that chronicles, you know, the history of God's people following the glory days of David and Solomon. And so we're going to try to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. I'm going to do it by combining reading directly from Scripture, but then also summarizing some parts as well. Now, how many of you were here last week with Pastor Sam's message on Josiah? Okay, good. I bring that up because to give you some context, uh, Hezekiah is actually the great-granddad of Josiah. Now, Sam talked about Josiah's dad and grandfather, both bad dudes, both rebellious against God, both choosing to defy his ways. But Hezekiah, the great-grandfather, was different. Now, Hezekiah 
had a dad who was rebellious against the Lord as well. Scripture says that his dad, Ahaz, followed the rebellious ways of all the surrounding kings of the nation, so much so that he even sacrificed one of his own sons in the fire as you know, part of following a pagan ritual to appease the gods. So Hezekiah is this son of Ahaz who wasn't sacrificed. He went to live on and eventually took over as king at the age of 25. But to set the scene a little more, this was less than an ideal time to become king. This is past the glory days of the people of God. As Pastor Sam mentioned last week, following King David, following King Solomon, the kingdom of God split into two kingdoms, one known as Israel, one known as Judah. Now, Israel drifted further and faster from the Lord, and pretty soon just started to spiral down to the point where they were eventually taken over around 700 B.C., kind of give you some context, by what was known as the most powerful empire in the world at that time, the Assyrians. The Assyrians, who were they? They were mighty, they were godless, and they were brutal. They plowed their way through the Middle East. They were expanding their territory, conquering kings and kingdoms one by one by whatever means necessary. And it gets pretty graphic. Think about the most horrific ISIS beheading video that might be out there. Multiply that several times over, and you've got the Assyrians. The Assyrians didn't have, you know, video to use, so what did they do? They would impale rulers of the, the territories they conquer. I mean, literally sticking humans on gigantic poles like human shish kebabs and leaving them out there for all the world to see as if to say, don't mess with us. We conquered them, we conquered them, we conquered them, and we're coming for you. I mean, they are the powerhouse. Now, historically speaking, the Assyrians even conquered the Israelites, this one half of the people of God, and now they're coming for Judah. And so, what's Hezekiah going to do, right? What do we know about Hezekiah? Well, early on in 2 Kings 18, we're told that Hezekiah did, quote, what was right in the eyes of the Lord, that he trusted in the Lord, that he kept the commands of God, and as a result, the Lord was with him. So by the grace of God, Hezekiah is in this place of power, trying to do the best he can to live faithfully before the Lord against some incredible odds, and now he's about to face his biggest challenge. The Assyrians are at the doorstep of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. The king of Assyria, a man by the name of Sennacherib, sends his supreme army commander, he sends these other key leaders to bring a message to Judah, to their king, Hezekiah. And that's where we pick up the story. 2 Kings 18, verse 19. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? Like, why do you think you can even stand up to us, Right? You say you have the counsel and the might for war that you're, you know, actually going to be able to, to duke it out with us, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Verse 23, come now make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. <laughs> I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? I mean, this is trash talk at its finest. Go ahead, we'll give you a couple thousand horses, right? Go ahead, team up with Egypt and all their chariots. Even then, you're not going to stand a chance. This is the voice of fear. This is the voice of intimidation. And it's the voice that we hear today. Driving down to verse 28. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's trying to tap into the fear of people. He's trying to make them afraid. He's trying to get them to turn against Hezekiah and, and his authority. They go on, do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Do that, surrender, and then what? 
Things will be great. You'll eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive tree. So then honey, choose life and not death. It is to say, go ahead, give up, give in, and, and things will really work out for you. That, by the way, is the temptation of compromise in the face of fear. Often when we're afraid, we think, okay, kind of been standing my principles, standing my ground, trying to live for God. But you know what? If I give in to this temptation, maybe things won't even be that bad. Maybe it'll really actually kind of work out, right? Fear has a way of bullying us and seducing us. Going on, verse 32. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. And here's the punchline. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his hand from the hand of the king of Assyria? And as if that wasn't enough, he just starts listing like their history, right? Verse 34, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena, and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand, right? Hezekiah, we got a track record. We have been crushing every foe in sight. What makes, th- what makes you think you're going to be any different, Right? That's how fear works. That's how intimidation works. We know of stories of people who have gone through trials, maybe like one we're facing, and it hasn't turned out well. And fear says, you know, what makes you think it's going to be any different for you? And so what's the response of God's people? Verse 36, but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. This tearing of clothes was a Middle Eastern sign of grief, of anguish, of agony. And so how does Hezekiah respond? Chapter 19 begins, verse 1. When Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, heard this, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. These torn clothes, this sackcloth attire, they're outward signs of his anguish and desperation. And with that, Hezekiah goes to a place of worship. He goes into the temple of the Lord because, quite frankly, he's got nowhere else to turn. Well, from there, the officials take this news, and they go to a new character in the story, a character that we haven't met yet, the prophet Isaiah. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that there's a book in the Old Testament called Isaiah. It's a big one, six six chapters and all. Isaiah, the prophet, lived around this time. He's God's chosen spokesman, this, this older guy who's seen a lot of life, right? And so Isaiah comes. They share the story about the threat of the Assyrians, and this is how he responds Chapter 19, verse 6, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says, Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So Isaiah says, he's not saying the words blaspheme the prophet Isaiah, they blaspheme the Lord himself. Listen, when he, the king of Assyria, verse 7, hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Okay, so you have this powerful army advancing. They're on the doorstep of Judah saying, give up. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. I mean, you know, just legions of armies there, and then you have this one prophet who says, don't listen. As a matter of fact, that king, that one who is blaspheming the Lord who is threatening God's people. He's going to turn around and head home, and he actually is going to be cut down by the sword. Now we, you know, we're here in church, and we're like, well, of course I'm going to listen to the prophet, right? I mean, he's God's spokesman. But just visually, thousands in military gear with this incredible track record, and one lone dude in a robe saying, I'm speaking for God. I mean, who are we going to listen to, right? That's the push and pull that Hezekiah is facing. 
Yet even with this ray of hope, the threats keep coming. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sends more messengers back to Hezekiah again. This is what they say, verse 10. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard, remember, remember what you've seen, what you've heard, that the king of Assyria has done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And you, you somehow are the exception. You somehow will be delivered. See, that's how fear works. It intimidates us. It plants seeds of doubt. Fear points to the failures of others and makes us wonder, is it really going to be different for me? From there, again, the list of all the people that they've conquered. And so what's Hezekiah's response, right? I mean, this is, this is it, right? He, he sees what's going on. He hears the threats again and again and again from the Assyrian army, these messengers of King Sennacherib. He hears this one lone voice of the prophet Isaiah, right? And so what does Hezekiah do? What would we do? Well, what we're about to see is an example for the ages. It is, I think, one of the most honest responses to fear that a follower of God can have. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. I love that. These pages, this scroll, whatever it is, right? of this threatening message, he, he spreads it out before the Lord as if to say, God, here's my problem. God, I am so helpless and I don't know what to do. This is his physical action, but there is also a spiritual response going on underneath the surface. And he articulates that with a prayer, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God. God over all the kingdoms of the earth, including the Assyrians, you have made heaven and earth. And so in his prayer, Hezekiah starts by recognizing the unrivaled greatness of his God. It's not about him. He doesn't start off with his problems. No, instead of looking outward at his foe, instead of looking inward at his fear, he looks upward at his God. Verse 18. With that message spread out, he says, Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. Do you think God hears your prayers? Do you, do you think God sees what you're going through? Hezekiah did. And he said, God, here, here's my life, man. I invite you into it. Because... <laughs> I don't know what else I'm going to do. Not only that, but Hezekiah realizes that what's going on is so much bigger than just him, doesn't he? That this isn't about one country trying to attack another. No, this is about an arrogant human ruler mocking the living God. This is an assault against the glory of God. And Hezekiah recognizes that. These words are ridiculing you, the living God. He goes on, verse 19, It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. I, I'm drawn to these verses, too, because Hezekiah is honest about the problem he's facing, right? See, for us and our fear, what are we tempted? We're, we're tempted to deny that problems exist. We're, we're tempted to, to downplay that they're really not bad as they are. What is Hezekiah? He goes, it is true. This problem I'm facing, these Assyrians, they have laid waste to everyone they've come up against so far, right? He's a realist, right? The implication is, you know, and Lord, if it's just about us against them, there's no way we're going to win. But part of this prayer is Hezekiah realizing it's not just us against them. Verse 19, now Lord our God, deliver us from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Amen. Do you know why God answers prayer? Really two reasons. God answers prayer as our loving Heavenly Father for our good. And it's true. And I love that opening song we sang together, that, that, that our God is a good, good Father. So, so he answers prayer for our good, but he also answers prayer for his glory. God will not be ridiculed. God will not be mocked. God will not be blasphemed. But he will act in such a way that no one will rob him of his glory. 
deliver us, Lord, so that we can go ahead and do whatever we want and get back to our own self-centered lives? No. So that everyone around us will know that you alone are the one true God. Wow. The world may know that you alone are God. Listen, if you don't get anything else from this message, jot somewhere this passage, these six verses, right? 2 Kings 19, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Read the passage sometime again this week. At least take Hezekiah's example as a model prayer. That when you're afraid, when you're up against some intimidating problem that you can't solve on your own, go, okay, I see what he did here, and I, maybe I need to pray like that. Because to me, when I look at Hezekiah, I see this honest vulnerability. I see this worshipful dependence, and it's such a model for us about heroic faith in action. Well, shortly after Hezekiah prays, the Lord moves Isaiah to deliver an extended prophetic message to him. We won't read through it. But these several verses predict not only the survival of Jerusalem and Hezekiah and the people of God, but they also foretell the eventual fall of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And wrapping his words up, he says, Isaiah 1, 32, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not, despite what it looks like with your own eyes, he will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he, that he came, he will return and he will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. I will fight for you. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, promises that God makes for his people. And so you have this incredible prayer. You have this hopeful prophecy. How does the story end? Verse 35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now, the numbers here are just staggering. I mean, I cannot even imagine what that must have been like, but it was a message sent in such a way that this arrogant king, who had never known defeat, finally understood that he needs to turn around and head back home, that no one messes with God. And then for good measure to close the chapter, we read this, verse 37. You might recall something about this from Isaiah's prophecy earlier on. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons Adramalach and Sharezer killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Isaiah said that Sennacherib would learn of news that would cause him to head back home and that he would be fallen by the sword. And that's what happened. An outcome that seemed so outrageous, I don't know, 24, 48 hours before. And yet God fought for his people, he fought for his glory, and he proved to a watching world that, that there is no one like our God. The question is, do we believe that the God of this story is the same God we worship today? We better. We really do. Because this isn't fairy tale, this is history. This is real life stuff. You know, and as we begin to wrap up, what do we do with this story? I mean, how does that, the, the, the heart, the hope of this story enter into our lives? What do we learn about being heroic as God defines it? Well, certainly, as I pointed out before, there is a spiritual goldmine here for us in the example of Hezekiah's prayer. And maybe that's your takeaway today. You know what, heroes? Heroes aren't ashamed to ask for help, especially when it comes to God's help, Right? I mean, that's really what prayer is about. You know, I think there are a lot of times where we feel really overwhelmed by our problems. We get paralyzed by our fears, and we know that we should pray, right? And that part of us really wants to pray, but we don't know where to start. We don't know how to begin. Use Hezekiah's example. Start, maybe you literally need to just lay your problem out before the Lord, Right? And maybe that problem is encapsulated in some kind of email or, or letter or something you got in the... I don't know, right? Lord, here, look, listen, help, right? God is more interested 
and a dependent heart than, you know, fancy, flowery words. Look, listen, help. Help for my good, help for your glory, God, right? And that's really the essence. That's the essence of his prayer. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there was the honest part in there going, yeah, this problem I'm facing, it's pretty incredible, right? God, this is not just about me, it's about us, it's about you. Heroic faith knows that you don't have to go it on your own. Heroic faith believes in the power of prayer. That's one takeaway, here's the other, and I'll close with this. Heroes and heroic faith. Heroes listen to the right voices, right? Heroes listen to and respond to the right voices. Remember what I said at the beginning, that a hero and a coward have one thing in common, and that's fear? Heroes and cowards both hear the same voices of fear, right? They both hear the voices of intimidation that say you're going down, that you're not going to survive this, that, that, that make us doubt, you know, what makes you think you're any different, right? To be human in this world is to hear those voices. Heroes and cowards have that in common. But there's a difference between hearing and listening. There's a difference between hearing those voices versus actually listening to them and giving in to them. Because listening is much more than hearing. Listening takes it in, but also acts upon what is heard. And so for us as Christians, as we go through life, we're going to hear voices, a lot of voices, voices of fear. And The question is, which voice are we going to listen to? In case of Hezekiah, it really boiled down to, to a couple, right? The, the voice of fear, intimidation, bullying from the Assyrians, and what, what he visually saw when their army lined up, you know, at the walls of Jerusalem. Oh, and the track record of defeat, right? That, which, which by sight is a pretty powerful, pretty intimidating voice. Or the voice of Isaiah, the spokesperson of the Lord. It's one old guy in a robe speaking God's truth, right? You know, our situation, 2,700 years, I mean, it's completely different, right? And yet not really. Not really. Will we listen and give in to the voice of fear, intimidation, about? And you know where that voice comes from? It comes ultimately from the enemy of our soul, Satan, who will do anything to discourage us, who will do anything to distract us from the faith, from the truth. Will we do that or will we listen to the still, small voice of God who still speaks today? Now, it looks different than it did back then, right? God doesn't send us, you know, human beings, prophets, as God's mouthpiece. But what we have is even better. We have the Bible, the written word of God. God's timeless truth recorded to us, preserved through the ages. We have the Holy Spirit who is given to every single Christian at the moment of their salvation. The Spirit who guides, leads, encourages. We have the church. We have each other. And God often uses a brother and sister in Christ to remind us what we know to be true when everything else around us is telling us something else. We also have Jesus. We have his cross. We have his resurrection. We have the message that that sends us that even against life's most powerful foe, death itself, nothing can stand against the power and the greatness of our God. That is the message. That is our hope that regardless of what our eyes tell us and what our fears say to us, the voice of God, the voice of truth, that he is with us and that he will fight for us is there always. Listen, you're not alone in your fear, but fear will try to make you feel that way. Fear succeeds when you think the battle is yours alone. Fear succeeds when you give into intimidation and doubt. Fear succeeds when you turn your eyes inward. Fear succeeds when you get them off God, right? But it doesn't have to win the day because fear will fail when we're honest with God. Fear will fail when we recognize our limitations. Fear will fail when we invite him into our situation. Fear will fail when we turn to the Almighty. And fear will fail when we recognize that God will fight for our good and for his glory. Because God wants you to succeed. God wants you to survive. He wants his people to succeed, to survive. He wants this church to succeed and survive. So yes, We've got our different fears. It's what it is to be human. 
Some of us here are wrestling with a fear of failure. We're being led to take a step of faith, and we're scared. Some of us wrestle with a fear of loneliness. We look around and everything, you know, maybe they'll even come to church, and you're like, God, look at these perfect families up here, look at these happy couples, and you're like, God, why, why am I going through this? Maybe fear of death. Money fears, family fears, relational fears, acceptance fears, you name it, right? To be afraid is to be, excuse me, to have fears is to be human in this world. But heroes listen to the right voices. The voice of God, the voice of truth, the voice that says, I am with you always, you're not in this alone, that I will fight for you, God says, for your good, for my glory, so let's do this together. Trust in me. That's what heroic faith looks like. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you that the characters, the story, the situation, though it's different, you're the same. You really are the same. To have fear in this world is to be human. And so, God, we pray that we would bring our fears to you. We literally lay them out before you and say, God, look, listen, act, help, deliver, rescue, provide, protect, strengthen. There are are hundreds of people in this room, Lord. Hundreds of situations. And you're big enough, you're strong enough, you're loving enough to fully enter each one if we'll invite you there. And so God, let us do that, especially some who've come in today with with heavy burdens and paralyzing fear. Free them. Free them by the power of your Holy Spirit. That they would not look outward at their foe, they would not look inward at their fears, but they would look upward to their God and how great he is. Because you are great, God. Jesus, you are great. And in, in you, in you alone, we find our hope, our love, our strength, and everything we need to follow you in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond together with this song of worship. Would you stand?
here in the power of Jesus Christ. We, his people, stand. God is for us. Who can be against us? This is the truth of Scripture. This is the truth in your life. Amen? Amen. Next week, we'll continue our Heroes series, but as you go from here, may the power of Jesus Christ rest upon your life. God bless you.